0: Welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast, where we interview scientists, philosophers, and leading thinkers to discuss the nature of our reality and the impact it has on our daily lives.
1: Julia Mossbridge is a cognitive neuroscientist at Northwestern University who studies precognition, intuition, and creativity. Dr. Mossbridge is the founder of the Mossbridge Institute and has developed the smartphone app Choice Compass, which uses heart activity to help access intuition about life choices. She has aptly been called a spiritual scientist. In this episode, we talk about Julia's experience training the Navy to tap into their intuition, her current experiment to determine if our unconscious can predict the stock market, the relationship between time and precognition, how the app she created, Choice Compass, can help us to tap into our inner wisdom when making decisions, and how her own experience with precognitive dreams as a child led her into this work. And with that, let's jump in. Hi, everyone. This is our first episode, and I am your host, Susanna Scully. Thank you so much for listening in. I'm really excited to bring you today's guest, cognitive neuroscientist and PhD, Julia Mossbridge. I first discovered Julia's work through the Institute of Noetic Sciences, where she examines how we integrate experiences into a so-called stream of consciousness. She is also a visiting scholar at Northwestern University Julia is the author of Unfolding, The Science of Your Soul's Work, with another book set to publish this year. She is also the founder of Mossbridge Institute, where she leads cutting-edge experiments and gives talks about her work to clients like the U.S. government and companies such as Bose and Google. Welcome, Julia. Hi, Susanna. Thanks for having me on great. We're really excited to have you here. I thought we could get started by hearing a bit about your background and what got you on this path. Sure. Um,
0: I grew up in a household where my mother was a therapist and my father was a physicist. And I think that had a lot to do with me being very interested in both the mental and physical aspects of mind. So trying to understand the brain and also trying to understand consciousness and the mind and how and how people work. And um, I also, since I was a child, have had um, what's called precognitive dreams. So there are these dreams that seem like they're specific enough in their details to events that happen after the dream. So like on Monday, I might dream. When I was a kid, I remember my first precognitive dream was uh, my friend, Ishane lost her watch on the playground during recess in my dream. And then I woke up and went to school, and that very person lost her watch on the playground during recess, and I thought... Yeah, and, I th- and that kept happening and still happens periodically. And um, and uh, that made me very interested in time because uh, when I started keeping a dream journal and really you know, making sure that my dreams were in fact what I thought they were and I wasn't just fooling myself about these very specific dreams, but in fact they were really that specific, um, it made me say, okay, time isn't the way we think think it is. It doesn't work the way we think it is. It has something to do with our minds and maybe less to do with what's out there in the physical world. And so that's what brought me to, to want to understand time in the neurosciences and in psychology and experimental psychology, both in our conscious minds and in our unconscious or the processes of which we are not conscious, which you could call the unconscious or you could just call and even larger category is just everything that's a non-conscious process. So that's that's what brought me here in a nutshell.
1: Wow. Okay. Well, I want to go back to that moment when you first had that precognitive dream. How, about how old do you remember? you? The first time you remember that happening? The first
0: time. Let's say I was friend, friends with that particular girl. I, it must have been first or second grade.
1: Okay. So you had this dream. Did you share this with your parents? And if so, wh- what information did they give you, if any? <laughs>
0: Um, you know, my parents always talked about dreams around the, the breakfast table, and I and I always um, had many dreams. I would have five or six dreams a night, and I still do, um, probably as a result of the openness in our family about sharing our dreams, um, at least partially. But um, I don't remember what they said. I mean, I'm sure they just thought it was, you know, one of those. The thing with precognitive dreams like that is they seem so simple. And almost nothing. And they don't seem to have to do with anything psychological. I didn't have a big anxiety about watches or playgrounds or this friend, you know? So (laughs) it just seemed like a throwaway kind of dream. And those kind of dreams often do like, well, why did I dream that? You know, unless they're really emotional and they're kind of like warning dreams. But often they're just like, oh, well, that happened. Um, And then when the events happen, that's when. Uh, You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to go back in my journal. But at that time, I wasn't writing down my dreams. And so that's when I started saying, no, I want to be able to go back and convince myself that I didn't make it up that I dreamt this, you know.
1: Right. So tell me about the process of as soon as you realized, okay, there's a connection here and this has something to do with time. Um, will you help us, for those of us, including me, who don't fully comprehend this, right? Um, We know that time isn't real, but I don't, that's as far as I get. Um, So for those of us who, using this precognitive dream as an example, um, if you could tell us about the process of your researching this and what you discovered about the reality of time.
0: Sure, and I got to tell you, you are on the planet with every single other person here who doesn't understand time. I don't, I don't think there's a person on the planet who understands time. Certainly I don't. Yeah. Um, but that kind of thing just made me start, I mean, it's interesting. It's a circuitous, circuitous route. I, I went to graduate school in neuroscience, and, and I was studying stress and pain, and that wasn't, didn't feel like the right thing. I ended up dropping out with my master's in neuroscience and thinking I would never go back to, P, to get a Ph.D., but then I got sucked into a marine mammology class um, when I was working at uh, at and Just on the side, I just thought I wanted to take this class in marine mammology. And the professor asked, you know, does anyone want to analyze these killer whale songs from Antarctica underwater sounds from, like, 1977? And at, the point, at that point, it was the, the late nineties. And I put my hand up so fast cause I was sure the whole rest of the class was going to want to do this. Right? I was like, Oh my God. Oh she calls <laughs> on me! Oh my God. And of course, no, everyone's looking at me like, what is your problem? Um, so, so of course she said, great. Meet me with me later. Her name is Jeanette Thomas and she's a, she's a wonderful marine mammal researcher. Anyway, through working with those killer whale sounds um, I really started understanding um, how we spread out information over time, um, just like killer whales do, you know, that they have a call that goes, you know, that's different from a call that goes, right? Okay, yes. Okay, I so, think, I get, yes, theoretically. Yeah, yes, right, so it's a different order of events, and order of events turns out to be very important in terms of communication, right? Mm-hmm, Okay. So then I said, okay, I really want to study this. And then I went back to school to get my PhD and understand the auditory system, how order of events influences um, the way our auditory systems work and how we think about time. And then after that, getting my PhD, I wanted to understand that further and more complex systems and integrate the auditory and visual system. And so that's what I did as my postdoc. And then finally I said, um, okay, I started to hear about Institute of Noetic Sciences. I started to hear about Dean Radin's work there in which he showed that, Um, the physiology of human beings uh, can actually predict upcoming events, emotional events, um, even if those events are designed to be unpredictable, even if people are not conscious of it. So this is usually an unconscious or non-conscious process. And I thought that sounded crazy, but at the same time, I, I knew from the work on time And this is what I want to help sort of people understand, that our conscious awareness of how time works is just a story about the way the world works, right? It's a story that's being told to us because it's a convenient way for us to experience things. For instance, the order in communication is useful to understand that there's a difference between, you know, um, the sentence, um, I sing about elephants that dream of me, and I dream about elephants that sing to me, right? Those have Mm, different meanings, Yes, yes. And that's all the order. And so it's very, very helpful for our conscious waking lives for us to have an import in the order of events. But in terms of what we're not conscious of, we frankly have no idea how time works because we're not conscious of it, right? Yeah, Yeah. So our best approximation, so then I started getting interested in physics and looking at physics and and as a kid i read some einstein but lately i've been reading einstein again and you know he says in his theory of special Rel- relativity frankly there is no privileged now there is no moment that we can call now and therefore there is no moment that we could really call an absolute past and an absolute future so all events that have occurred in the universe have actually occurred if you could think about time as a room all the events are there but we but we travel through this room With our conscious minds, we have the experience of traveling through this room in a certain way, such that events that we haven't gotten to yet, we don't see, and events that we have gotten to, we do see. Mm -hmm. And so, um, to me, I'm very fascinated by this idea that conscious awareness um, really is the story of the events in the room that makes it palatable to us in some way, and that these non conscious processes of which we are not aware but are going on all the time and, in fact, shape our conscious awareness. Um, are, are based on way more information than we consciously have about both the past and the future. Or what we call the past and the future.
1: So, okay, so let me see if this, if this helped me process this using your room example. I once heard, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Anita Morjani, who had the near-death experiment experience and wrote the book Dying to Be Me. Um, no. Okay. I highly recommend you and everyone check it out. It's a pretty phenomenal story. Um, she had stage four cancer, um, essentially died, um, but went to the other side and, and came back and actually ended up healing herself of all her cancer within three weeks, which was a complete medical mystery. That's yeah. And so one of the things that she described on being the other side where she became one with consciousness, right, where she became just consciousness, the way she described it was she said, it's as if we're walking around in this huge warehouse with a flashlight. And when she went to the other side, if you will, when she had her near-death experience, she said it was as if someone turned all the lights on and she looked around and there was all of this stuff, if you will, right? The warehouse was just full of it, but I couldn't see it in, in this reality, right? Um, and so when she came back to, to life, she said um, the lights you know, went back down, but she still, ha- she still had knowledge that it was all there. She just couldn't see it because of our biology. And so if I'm using that as an example, when you were saying the past, present, and future all exist in this room, is it as if we have the flashlight and we can look to the past Um, and we see the now, but we can't see the future, even though it's in the room. Um, we are limited by our senses, if you will, to be able to see it. Is that what
0: you're saying? Well, that's interesting. I mean, that's a nice parallel. Um, maybe that is something like what I'm saying. Our conscious awareness restricts, I mean, this is, again, this is my hypothesis. Yeah. Talk to me in five years i 'll have a different one okay. right? <laughs> but um, but my current hypothesis is that the conscious awareness really is a restricted version of reality because that 's what we need to function
1: mm-hmm.
0: in our waking awareness, and maybe she in that in that experience she had had access to a much um, more full representation of reality mm-hmm. you know so maybe that's that's a nice parallel yeah,
1: okay, so. So using this as time and this idea of this precognitive awareness at a subconscious level, right, either as individuals or I know with um, Institute of Noetic Sciences does a lot of work around um, group consciousness, right, and having precognitive knowledge of events happening. Yes, absolutely. And so the conclusion or theory that you're coming to is that everything exists at once and if we are able to tap into our subconscious, then we are able to access that information. Am I saying that correctly? Maybe. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> this is not fun about the cosmos. Everything is maybe. Question begins more questions.
0: Yeah. I mean, maybe it's the case that if we can trap it, tap into our subconscious, we could we could access some aspects of it. And maybe it's the case that that's not a great thing to do. Yeah. Maybe it's the case that we're constructed this way for a reason. Um, and so... I think there's a certain amount of care that one takes, and respect that one must have for the current status of our minds. Um, uh, you know, millions of years of evolution um, probably aren't wrong in this, in in making us kind of unaware of these things. And at the same time, um, we can experiment a little bit and carefully. So, by that I mean, so for instance. Um, one of my projects is called Choice Compass. So it's a it's a compass for your choices that draws on your your heart activity and how we already know that heart rhythms are related to um, both non conscious and conscious feelings about things, right? So that's yeah. a couple of decades of research. We already know that Heart Math Institute has really worked hard on that. And so what I did was take that idea and test it for simple things like life choices. Simple things like do I leave my across the world or not? Right. So, Should I marry this person? Right. Yeah. right. What could be the problem? <laughs> you know? um, so I asked people to think about each of two contrasting choices in the app for um, 50 seconds, so almost a minute. And then gather their heart activity as they're doing that via the uh, camera lens on their phones. And um, in, in the tutorial that I give them, I give them a huge amount of leeway. Like, you know, if the app doesn't give you an answer that meshes with your intuition, go with your intuition. Mm-hmm. Because, and I, I'm being a little paranoid because my, my you know I've done seven different experiments that show that there is this distinct difference between positive and negative choices and stuff in terms of heart activity. But... You know, it's all on average and it's, it, each person is different. And so I think we just have to take a certain amount of care um, and think carefully about how it, will, how it works to access your subconscious and bring it into your conscious awareness and then sort of build out your conscious awareness so it includes more of reality. I think that's a, a process that we go through carefully and, and with um, some thought and maybe with a group of supportive other people.
1: Yeah. And I want to say to our listeners, I have been using Choice Compass app, which you all can find in the app store by doing a search on Choice Compass. And it has been awesome for multiple reasons. Um, number one, if nothing else, it causes you to be really thoughtful and mindful about your choices. Because as Julia said, you you spend close to a minute thinking about the outcome of each choice. So you're really thoughtful, right? And you're, you're, you're imagining what it would feel like. And so it has been a fascinating experiment for me and I have been using it and the results have been pretty amazing on on showing me which way to go. Uh, so I highly recommend everybody check it out. Yes, thank you. Um now I know you're working on some other cool projects. Um if you don't mind sharing what those are.
0: Absolutely. Um I always have projects. <laughs> which ones would you like? To share? <laughs>
1: Um, well, there's a few that I that I know we've talked about before that were neat. Um one is the experiment.com. Um oh, right. The one on can our unconscious minds predict the stock market. Could you tell us more about that?
0: Yeah, yeah. That um that I'm excited about. I'm working with um a colleague at University of Colorado Boulder. His name is Garrett Modell, and he and I are uh we he has evidence from his um psychology class that he wrote up where he just had a bunch of students who didn't know anything about predicting the stock market he just had them draw pictures of what they thought they would see the next day okay so if it's a monday he would say you know tomorrow i'm going to show you a picture in class uh i know this sounds crazy but try to draw a picture of what you think you're going to see (laughs) okay meaning like a chart like how the stock market would do no. Oh. A picture of a tree or whatever. Like, oh. a, like like a it does it didn't it didn't seem to the kids to have anything to do with the stock market. Okay. Right? Okay. And so he would have them draw pictures. And then back in his office, he had a computer that um, had a program that would randomly assign up movement of the stock market with one picture and down movement of the stock market with another picture. So like a picture of the tree is up and a picture of a bicycle is
1: down, let's say. Okay. Right, but how did he design that? That was an arbitrary.
0: He had already written the computer program. So oh, it just, I see. Okay. Yeah, okay. it randomly defined that. Okay. But he he didn't know if the stock market was going to go up between Monday and Tuesday. Right. Right. And so the computer just said, "All right, if it's going to go up, we're going to show him this picture tomorrow—the picture of the tree—and if it's going to go down, we're going to show him the picture of the bicycle." Okay. And so then he um, looked at all the pictures in the class and rated each one. Each, each student's picture, did it look more like a tree or a bicycle? And then on average, he finds that, okay, most of them look like trees. And then he bets, you know, whatever, $1,000 or something mm-hmm. he had in this pool of betting money yep. um, on the uh, up movement of the stock market. Based on the idea that on Tuesday, he would be showing them the correct picture for the movement of the stock market. And based on their drawings, if they could predict what they would see the next day, it would be a tree. So I know it sounds crazy, but this, this, this works. So he made $35,000 What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they were right every time, um, as a group, when you averaged across all the trees and, and bicycles and, and things that didn't look anything like trees and bicycles. Right. And so he, the reason he did this experiment is he had read in the literature, the same literature I had read about, um, what's called precognitive remote viewing, There's decades of research on this, um, most of which had been funded by the United States um, government, actually, Hmm. in the 90s. And the showing that um, it doesn't take much training for people to uh, be open enough to access information about a future specific event, like what picture will you see tomorrow? And if you just associate those events to stock market changes, then voila, right? Right. So, he only had done this for seven days. They were right every day, which is statistically significant, but it's not, it's not impressive enough. So, we talked to a financial analyst, and he said, um, you know, he works in trying to get artificial intelligence algorithms that predict the stock market. And he said, you know, the best they get is like 65% accuracy. He said, look, if you can get better than 65% accuracy over about six months, mm-hmm. then, then, the, then the financial Let's world. Talk. Will- well, yeah, then yeah. the financial world's going to take notice. So he's helping us, um, you know, th- sort of in the background with this project. And um, we're going to do get six months of data, of this kind of same kind of data. And we're comparing people who dream about future events, um, people who um, do this kind of precognitive remote viewing dev- in a devoted way, so like single, well trained people, with a bunch of people uh, crowdsourced. A group of people so basically like his class a group of people and take on average the result and we're going to see which which method predicts the stock market best we're very excited about it
1: that okay so let me come back to so the first group are people meaning who uh who are trained like psychics or right is that who are
0: we're going to choose one we actually have one uh, a guy named dale Graf. okay so one dreamer who's willing to um, assign himself the task each night of dreaming about what he'll see Uh. the next day. And he's really good at this, and so he'll just report each day, and then we'll use his data. And we're going to pit his results against um, a devoted remote viewer, which is actually either going to be myself or Garrett, because he and I both do well at this kind of thing. And then the third group will be a group of people, maybe 10 to 20 or 30 people, who we take their average, they don't necessarily have to be trained or anything, but we're just going to take their average, kind of like um, Garrett did with his class, Mm -hmm. take their average response and use that. And we'll see who wins. And um, yeah, so we're asking people to support the experiment on experiment.com. And it's called, what is it called? Can your unconscious mind predict the, can our unconscious minds predict the stock market? Right, right, Exactly. Good. I'm glad I got the name.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so people can go on experiment.com, which I'm, I which I had never heard of experiment.com. Is it like a crowdfunding for experiments? Yes, exactly. Okay. Like an Indiegogo or, or – yep. or. Okay, got it. Before experiments. Okay, so people can go on there and support, support that experiment. Um, very cool and very interesting. I once read a book – I know I remember her name. Laura – is it Laura Day, who is an expert on intuition – and she got hired often by people in finance executives for this ex- very thing. And so she, I read this book about um, how to train yourself to do this same thing, and it was really helpful. She gave little, you know, experiments during. So she, she put a list of um, which of, of horses, right, um, for horse racing, and then you would, you know, tap into your intuition, and you, you, you would begin to understand the significance of images because your intuition often. speaks Speaks in images and not voices. Does that sound true?
0: Well, my it depends on how you train yourself. Okay. So, um, but my experience is first for me. My experience is first an image comes, and then I have uh, sounds. Like so, if I see like a wavy picture, and then I hear the sound of the ocean, mm. I say, "Oh, it's something about the you know water, body of water, ocean." You know, so I write that down. You know, mm-hmm. but very rarely do actual nouns. Um, when I, when I, I'm very skeptical of nouns. Like if something comes up that says there's a car and there's a cliff and I'm like, yeah, whatever. Um, because (laughs) you could be misinterpreting it. Yeah. It could look like a car or a cliff, but it's more like it could also be like a bunny rabbit on the side of a hill. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so there's all sorts of statistical ways to analyze these because of those kind of coincidences. And what's intriguing is, um, some of the best statisticians in the world have, have taken a shot at it, and they seem to find the same result, which is there's something going on. There's some kind of what's called anomalous communication happening through time. Um, and I honestly don't think it's, it's only anomalous in that our conscious experience of time is that we shouldn't be able to understand the future or know the future. Right. But I don't think it's anomalous in the sense that it seems like a lot of people can have access
1: to it if they want. If they want. And so is that, that's a great question. Are there only special people, for example, right, that have access or do you think anybody can if, if they are interested and um, want well, to?
0: My, you know, my sense is there are people who are naturally just good at it without much training. Mm-hmm. And I also think that there are people who, if they train themselves, can get good at it. And I think there are people who will never get as good as someone who's naturally good at it, even through a lot of training. It's kind of like a sport, right? Yeah,
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I know you've done work with the Navy to help them with their intuition. Is that right? Can you tell us a little bit about that or what you can tell us?
0: <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I worked with a contractor, actually, who's an analyst with the Navy, and he's, uh, I'm still actually working with him to build a intuition training program for law enforcement and military personnel. Um, he's, he's a visionary there and he had an experience that saved his life when he was deployed, where he had this urge to go get a drink of water, even though he had bottles of, of liquid right next to him in a cooler, Hmm. but he had to go, he just had the urge to go elsewhere and he did and he came back and where he had been standing had been exploded. And so, um, and so he really got it, you know, the crucial, the crucial nature of of the skill of listening to your intuition. Powerful. Now, um, one thing I, I wanted
1: to be sure to talk about as well is that I've heard you say that science is not a deity. What do you mean by that?
0: Oh, well, yeah. In our culture, you know, we've kind of replaced, we've said, okay, you know, it's ever since the Enlightenment kind of in Europe, right? We've kind of said, all right, well, Maybe there isn't a god or whatever, but there's science, and science will tell us what's true and what's right, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like we've replaced one deity with another. The problem is the whole job of science is to be wrong. The whole job of science is to ask questions and then get something right, but then, eh, if we're doing our jobs, we're going to replace every theory we have now <laughs> with another theory in a 100 years, right, if we're being productive scientists and not being sucked in by our own Kool-Aid, right? Yeah. So... Um, So I feel like there's a risk lately where people, you know, they get into these, what's called scientism, this kind of uh, religious science as a religion sort of attitudes where they say X, Y, and Z is not scientific. Well, the only way that something is not scientific is if it's not allowed to be questioned, observed analyzed if you can't use logic to understand it if you don't look at the data and instead decide that whatever you think is going on is in fact the reality that's unscientific yeah but that's not usually what they're talking about usually they hear something like about these um precognitive dreams or about remote viewing and they say oh that can't happen that's crazy well that's just being willfully ignorant right (laughs) right (laughs) because the data are there so you have to have some explanation for the data um so that's that's why i worry about this idea that we've just decided that science is some kind of big capital s uh, entity but in fact it's a lowercase it's the lower the lowest case s that you
1: can have <laughs> it is always shifting i mean it's in, it's incredible i mean even with the big bang theory it's amazing how much you know it happened it didn't happen what happened before it
0: wait we think this we don't think that you know it's just yeah. it's ever evolving yes and and it should be because we're never you know, we're never going to be completely right about everything. That's for
1: sure. Right. Um, and and on this point of remote viewing, um, are there certain books that you recommend, if people are really interested in learning more about this? I remember coming across a book somewhere that, that the US government used it to uh, spy on Russians, I think. I don't know if that sounds right. But are there certain great books out there that people should check out if they want to find out more?
0: Um, yeah, we did use it to spy on Russians. And there's some folks who believe we've been using it ever since for things like finding you know osama bin laden etc yeah there are excellent books so there's this book called um um the reality of esp by russell targ russell targ was one of the first innovators in this in this world um there's also limited mind i'm sorry limitless mind Mm -hmm. by the same by the same guy um Another guy involved in this world is Ed May, E-D-M-A-Y. He has a new book out. Um, I think it's called Anomalous Psychology. That is more technical for the more technical people. Okay. Um, And, of course, Dean Radin's books um, are all excellent. But his most recent, well, let's see. What would be the best? Well, I think the most recent one is the the best, Supernormal. normal. Yep. Yeah, I think it's excellent. So those are three books that I would highly recommend for this stuff.
1: Perfect. That's great. And I'll include all those links on the website as well. Oh, all right. Um, and the last question I want to ask you is, what's the most profound thing you've learned about the cosmos or collective consciousness? Oh, good Lord. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> you know, just that little question.
0: Just We'll just end on something light. <laughs> um... Easy. <laughs> Well, the most profound thing that I've learned, um, I, I think, it has to be that I don't know anything and that I don't, I don't do anything.
1: Mm. What do you mean you don't do anything?
0: I mean, we have this experience that we do things. You know, like I, I want to pick up the phone, so I pick up my phone. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was I who did it. Yep. But it's not I who did it, right? It's the entire universe. I and mean, what is what is the what is the separation between myself and the rest of the universe. When it comes down to it, you can't draw that line. There's no line to be drawn, separating me from the rest of the universe. So how is it that I say I picked up the phone rather than the entire universe picked up the phone? And the entire universe was picked up.
1: Right. Okay, talk about f- profound. Whoa, I don't even know what to do with that. <laughs> well, you-, you
0: asked me about the most profound. <laughs>
1: you, you went for it, <laughs> that's a whole other podcast wow wow okay and so for all of you who tuned into this podcast not just you but the whole universe tuned in right (laughs) that's
0: right and the whole universe listened and the whole universe did the podcast so it all works
1: out so thank you to to you all everybody Um, all right, great. Well, Julia, where can we find out more information about you? If people would like to read about your work or connect with you, where can they find you?
0: Um, sure. Just go to mossbridgeinstitute.com. That's where I usually list my projects and you can find links and and stuff about me.
1: Great. And it, it, so Mossbridge Institute is
0: M-O-S-S-B-R-I-D-G-E
1: and then institute.com. Again, mod, mossbridgeinstitute.com. All right. Thank you, Julia. That was so much fun. Thank you for your time and for the amazing work that you're putting out and for helping us to continue asking the big questions and, um, you know, helping to brighten our flashlights a little more to what's actually going on. Thank you. I love that. All right. Have a great rest of the day, everyone. And thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And I would love to continue the conversation with each of you over at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com backslash Cosmos in you or our Twitter page. The Twitter handle also is Cosmos in you. And of course, at our website, Cosmos Again, thank you so much for listening in. I'm so grateful to each of you to be able to share this shared passion and look forward to seeing you next time.